Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this The Legends podcast with me, Sarah Faruya. And today I'm really excited to be introducing to you a really a, a true legend in Tokyo there must be very very few people who live in Japan certainly expats who don't know this man it is Baye McNeil hi Baye hello Sarah how are you I'm good thank you it's really great to have you here I'm so pleased you agreed to do this um before we get into it um I just want to give uh, a good introduction for Baye um because there's just so much to say about him, but I want to just read his introduction out for now. So Baye was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He discovered his talent for writing in high school. High school. He went on to university and then arrived in Japan, where he started his blog, Loco in Yokohama. That was made into a book, which is in the top 10 books by African American, uh, by an African American in 2012. Um, in 2013, Bay released his second book, Loco in Yokohama, which is a collection of stories and anecdotes based on the goings on to Yokohama public schools, which addressed a lot of really hot button issues at the time. In 2015, Bayer began his work as an activist um, and spearheading successful protests to prevent the airing of a blackface minstrel show on Japanese TV. And in 2017 to 18, a popular Japanese TV comedy show had a Japanese comedian impersonate Eddie Murphy in blackface and Baye set off a global discussion and more importantly, a national public discourse in Japan about the appropriateness of blackface. This continues to today. He has very recently in the last year been seen on the BBC talking about these kinds of things. Um, in 2019, Baye's criticism of a major Japanese food company's whitewashing of tennis star Naomi Osaka, champion, also garnered global attention and firmly established Baye bona fide as a key influencer in the Japanese media as it pertains to the issues of race. In 2020, I'd like to add that Baye did an enormous amount of work um, around the Black Lives Matter movement. I actually 
don't know how you stayed above water. I've got goosebumps now and I feel quite emotional thinking about that, Baye, because you put so much work into that. It's unbelievable. And um, yeah, so we're going to talk now um, to Baye. He's, a, he's an educator. He lectures at universities, including Waseda University in Tokyo. I used to lecture there too, on topics such as biracial experience in Japan and the problems associated with stereotyping and presumptions. Um, he does so with the hope of raising awareness of issues critical to Japan's future, the country he has come to love and he calls home. So what a what an incredible introduction there. Writer, educator, so many things. So, well, author, columnist, and lecturer is what it says in his uh, in his bio on his on his website. Please do go over there, bayamcneil.com. Really interesting stuff over there. So let's get into it, Baye. So we like to start at the beginning here. So tell me about your ancestry, your background, and your childhood. My ancestry, <laughs> wow. Uh, actually, I don't know much about it. I mean, I know um, I can go back two generations. And my mother, you know, she's from Savannah, Georgia, as well as my grandmother from Savannah. On my father's side, my father's from Philadelphia, and his father was from uh, Jamaica. And that's as far back as I go. <laughs> I don't really know any of the greats, uh, great greats, none of that. I was, uh, I never met my grandparents. Mm -hmm. You know, they passed away before I was, you know, cognizant of people. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I'm really not really connected with my ancestry. What's the other question? Childhood and your upbringing. Well, I, I grew up, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> um, my mother, my mother, um, like I said, she's from Savannah, Georgia. But she moved to New York back in the early 60s, late 50s, mm -hmm. early 60s. And um, she got involved in activism, um, civil rights movement. And um, I think she was probably closer to the Malcolm X school <laughs> than to the uh, Martin Luther King school mm -hmm. of thought, but not that, they're, not that they were so distinct, but early on in their careers, their thinking was very you know, diverse. And, um, um, both were, you know, obviously both were assassinated. But um, after that, she got involved with uh, the Pan-African Black Power Movement of the 70s. Mm -hmm. And um, through a friend of hers. And she wasn't uh, keen on having her children Europe Europeanized in the public school system. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly what American schools are prone to do. Um, so she, instead of placing me in a public school, she put me in a private school that focused on um, African thought, African culture, African history, African language. So instead of learning about Picasso and Michelangelo and Beethoven and all these famous, popular, incredible Europeans, we learned about Africans, great, Africans of our his of our past, you know, and you know, Michael. Instead of Michelangelo, you have you know artists like Basquiat and these type of people. Mm -hmm. um, 
African uh, artists and musicians, uh, Coltrane and, you know, Philonius Monk and these type of people. Actually, they were, Monk and them were still around. They used to come to the school and perform and stuff. It, I was really a part of an incredible scene. My mother was, she was way ahead of her time. And the school, the name of the school was Yuhuru Sasa Shule. Mm -hmm. which is Swahili. We didn't learn French or Spanish. We learned Key Swahili, which is a language spoken in East Africa. And this is in Bethesda, I was in Brooklyn. This is, in, you know, this is what was going on in Brooklyn at that time. And um, in the school, during the day, the building where the school was um, located, during the day, it was a school. And in the evening, it became, it became a nightclub and many jazz performers and and musicians would come and perform. So after school, you know, we 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 take all the desks out of the classroom, replace it with these nightclub tables with candles and stuff. <laughs> and the people will, yeah, yeah. This school was um, it was uh, it was something special. It was really something special. And um, so anyway, that was the school I had gone to when I was a kid. And we 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 were very uh, it was it was fairly militant. A lot of teachers were Vietnam vets and um, Black Panthers and um, Black Muslims, you know, a lot of these uh, very progressive um, um, pro-Black type of uh, organizations were, you know, a lot of the leadership. And a lot of them were educators who were uh, disenchanted with the public school system and decided to start their own thing. Mm -hmm. So I was there until high school. <laughs> I, my first time, my first experience in public school was in high school, and um, that was uh, quite a culture shock for me. It was the first time I had a, a, a non-Black teacher. It was the first time expectations of me were so low. I was accustomed to them being extremely high, mm. and um, when I got to public school, I was so far advanced the, uh, ahead of the, the, the kids that were in public school by my peers that I kind of lacked off, slacked off, <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm two years ahead of you guys. Are you learning geometry? Really? We learned that? Like, you know, so I was so, I was so advanced that I, I, and I was so accustomed to kind of a, you know, like heavy discipline. The school I went to was very disciplined. We were marching in the streets, you know, with combat boots. This is the uniform, combat boots and dashikis and stuff. And then I go to public school, there's no uniform and it's, you know, you don't do your heart, no one cares, you know, and that's cool. If I didn't do my heart, they was beating us. <laughs> it was really a whole, it was a very entirely different environment there. So, um, yeah, I, I became slack, but I still did pretty well. And then when I graduated from high school, I went to university in Brook. Well, actually, no, right after high school, I, um, there was no one in my family really. My mother never went to university. My father, they were separated. So there was no one kind of pushing me towards going to university, but I kind of felt like this is something I really wanted to do. But I didn't have any money. We were very, uh, very poor. So I joined the service, uh, the army reserves in order to get money for school. And, um, and that was, a. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if you read my book or not, the first book, but I kind of covered most of my background in that book. Mm -hmm. but, um, but for our listeners, could you just give us a quick... Uh... <laughs> well, I, I spent, I, I joined the army in 1984. This was yeah. peacetime. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, America hasn't really had a peacetime since then. 
Mm -hmm. you know, ever since the, I think that was the first, uh, I think, you know, well, we had a little sporadic, you know, clashes with, you know, Haiti and you know, it was, it was something that happened in South America. I forgot which country it was. You know, they had little things back then, but it was nothing big. So yeah, I was in the army in the peacetime. And um, as soon as things started getting heavy, that's when I got out. So um, yeah, I spent eight years in the military and this is in reserve. So while I was pulling um, my, my weekend warrior uh, military duty, I was also going to university in, in Brooklyn. I went to Long Island University and I was studying media arts and communication. And it was there that I, I mean, I had written, I had written a couple of stories in high school that were, you know, applauded, but I didn't really think of myself as a writer then. But then I had written a few papers in, in the university and there was a professor there, Professor uh, Barbara Henning, who told me, you're a writer, you're a natural, you ought to be thinking about doing this in, you know, as a, as a career. I was like, really? You know, I didn't really believe her because I didn't really trust white people back then. <laughs> but um, she recommended that I take up English as a major and that I take this uh, writing, another writing course. And I did that at her recommendation. And that teacher also was like, wow, you are, you know, you have an extraordinary voice. You need to, you know, refine it. And here's some books. He gave me some, some recommendations, some writers that he thought would inspire me, encourage me to keep going. He was so on point. It was writers like uh, uh, Dashu Hammond and, um, who else was in there? Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison and people. I heard of, but I hadn't really read before. And once I read them, I was like, oh, oh my God, oh my God, I want to do this. Yeah. So yeah, um, it was because of these two professors that I really decided to become a writer. And both of them were white. So this kind of changed my, my, my uh, impression and what I was taught to believe about white people, I had to question that, you know, at this time in my life. And um, and I did. And then um, after university, I started working in, uh, well, I guess that's enough of, of that. Yeah, that's <laughs> just, there's so much in here. I've got, I've yeah. already got a page full of notes. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, I'm like, wow, how much am I supposed to cover? Oh, anyway. no, everything, everything, everything. Because everything, really. No, no, anything you want to, anything that comes out of your mouth is absolutely oh, okay. fine by it because it's just, it's all your story and it's all the way things are weaved together. And it's all the, like, this is absolutely fascinating. I had no idea about this this school that you went to. I'm really interested in the influence of that, but I'm-, hey, don't, I'm let, don't let me go off, please stop No, I love it. Ask questions. kidding me? Nobody needs to hear another thing from me. They <laughs> <laughs> listen to me every other week. So, um, no, this is absolutely fascinating. So I want to rewind. Your mum sounds like an uh, like a stellar woman. What? Wow. Um, I'm interested. So the first thing I'm interested in is just a very simple, straightforward question, which is this: Malcolm X, the Malcolm X School, or the Martin Luther King School? Can you just clarify that for me in the simplest terms possible? Like talking to. Oh, a child. and again, I'm referring to earlier in there. Thank yeah. you. Because uh, at this time, the time I'm talking about where that, the distinction was, was was crystal clear was when Malcolm X was a member of the uh, Black Muslims. Right. Okay. So um, at that time, the, the, the Malcolm X school of thought was um, past, 
passive resistance is 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 uh, tantamount to suicide. <laughs> right? You ask him, you're pretty much giving them carte blanche to kill you. And he his position was, if anyone hits you, hit them back harder. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone sticks a dog on you, you kill the dog and kill the person who tried to kill you with the dog. Mm-hmm. You don't just sit around wait for people to sick dogs on you and, and think of that as resistance. So that was his school of thought. And a lot of people felt that way. It felt like, you know, it's just too passive to let people, you know, abuse you for the, in, and of course the Martin Luther King school of thought was, um, this in itself is an aggression because um, the key is to let the world see how animalistic and can, you know, how, how deviant the forces against uh, us are and, and push forward with this Christian approach to it. So you're gonna to appeal to the Christians in the audience, which was, you know, America's fairly a fairly Christian country. You're gonna to appeal to the Christians. They're gonna feel guilty watching you being, watching Christians sick dogs on black, on, on black Christians. And that's gonna to appeal to their sense of morality more so than their humanity. Obviously humanity wasn't enough. So they need something else to kind of push them to the point where, uh, they're, they're prepared to side with MLK against this kind of evil, against this kind of darkness. So that was his approach. So they had two diff- distinct approaches. And also, also the Black Muslim approach was, there's never going to be any true integration in America. So let's just separate, you know, <laughs> have a Black America and a white America and see how it works out. So. Um, when slavery ended during the Reconstruction period, the former slaves were promised 40 acres in the mule. Give us our 40 acres in the mule now, each individual, and we'll have our own land and we can do our own thing and you can continue to do your thing. And we can just you know, do our thing separately. Uh, of course, America wasn't going to have any of that. Those, <laughs> you know, they couldn't even do it back then. Yeah, how's so, that working out? Yeah, so <laughs> that didn't, that, that was a, that was a, yeah. Not going to happen. So anyway, that was the two schools of thought. Thank you. That's really way clearer. And the the thing that really got me here is um, you have to appeal to the morality, not the humanity, because the humanity wasn't, isn't. You know, well, but, um, where's the morality as well? I'm, I I don't know. I have so many questions here. If if humanity was a uh, uh, a priority, if, every, if, if everyone being treated, of all Americans, all humans being treated humanely was a priority, we would have never had to go through the civil rights movement. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously that wasn't a priority in America. So, um, and I think that dates back to the original constitution because the constitution kind of dehumanized people of African descent from the start because in the constitution, uh, black people were five, eighths human. I think that was the, the fraction that was used. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a fraction of full human, you know, enfranchisement. So, um, and that just continued until Martin Luther King. So that continued until 1960s, this um, fraction of a human stas- uh, status. And, and I don't think any of these people that MLK was trying to appeal to were prepared to change that status until he appealed to their morality and their sense of, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe shame as well, because the whole world is watching 
how horrible, you know, how how much uh, tolerance America has for the kind of violence that was being done to Black people. Mm-hmm. And that's it, kind of embarrassing, maybe. I don't know. So it was a combination of feelings that he was tampering with that, that caused people to say, okay, it's time to make a change. And um, so I think, but I think it was a combination of, of MLK's um, way of going about things and MLK and, and Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X's that was, uh, that made all this happen. And both of them had, you know, they both were, were valid, totally valid. So oh, yeah, yeah, really it makes <laughs> perfect sense. I mean, the way you've just put that together there in a nutshell, I'm sure is going to be really useful for the people who are listening to this. And yeah. certainly for me um, to, to understand that particular snapshot of history, which, and which of course continues, that, that continues to this day and perhaps we can revisit that. I'm so interested in your mom, so interested in your mom. What a forward thinking woman and sending you to that school. I didn't even know schools like this were in play. Surprise, surprise. So what was, do you think the impact of that was? I mean, you've half answered this, like when you went to high school, you were like, oh, wow, now I'm undervalued, um, but also overachieving. Um, I think again, that just shines a spotlight on a lot of, a, a, an awful lot of things here, including the constitution. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and forgive me for being incredibly clumsy, I'm just going to ask the questions that I'm interested in. No, go for um, it. So what do you think was, so uh, first of all, your mom, tell me more about your mom. So interested in the, uh, in her. Um, well, my, my mom, she's a, she's an artist. Yeah. Um, she's still yeah. around. Yeah. Shout out to and, mama. Uh, she made, <laughs> yeah. She's a collage, collagist. Is that the word? Yes, it is now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she, she makes collages. And uh, you know, really awesome stuff. She's also a master hair braider. Oh wow! Yeah, you know, she had a, a hair braiding service. You know, that was very, very, uh, very popular back in the eighties and seventies mm-hmm. when people that first came into vogue. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm trying to remember. I think it was the seventies. Maybe yeah. there was a famous uh, actress on Sesame Street who my mother actually did her hair in, in the cornrows, and everybody said, "Oh, I want to be her." And you know, suddenly my you know mother had this booming business, but um, yeah, yeah, she was an extraordinary woman and a teacher and artist and here, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure, beautifier. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, she's she's great and um, yeah, very forward thinking, very forward thinking. Um, I, you know, she I have three, one, two, three, three older siblings. And they were in public school at the time, you know, so she, it wasn't like, it wasn't, um, she wasn't, it wasn't any guesswork involved. She could see the difference of what they were learning in, in public school and, and what they were, what they could be learning in this, in this Pan-African school. Yeah. So she pulled them out of public school and put them into this school. So they had had the experience of public school. I had never had the experience of public school. I, my first school was this school. So, um, and that school, and they they would not let you have a European name. So um, every, my family, we all changed our names, and that's how I got the name Baye. So the name Baye is actually a Senegalese name. Say again. Senegalese. Senegalese. Okay. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, so, and everyone in my family has African names, including my mother. And yeah, because um, in this school, they considered the European names as slave names. Yeah. So I'm not sure if you know the history of, of how African-Americans got their names, but the vast majority got their names from their former slave masters. So McNeil was likely the people who owned my grandfather back in Jamaica. So or his family, his his fathers, you know, so that's um, those names. And, and, and my first name as well, these are names that came from Europe, Europe and we as it's become commonplace for people of African descent to have these names. If you see, for example, if you see a Chinese person with a name like Joe, you're gonna be like, really? You know, yeah, yeah. But, but when you see a black guy with a name like Joe, you don't say really, but actually it should be the same thing because yeah. we are not native to Europe. So why do we have these European names? Um, so, now I have an African name. This is the name I go by. So, and everyone in my family does as well. So this type of thing is key. You know, I think it's critical to black self-esteem. Yeah. And, and when you are, um, when you are told that everything wonderful in, in the world and in the history comes from Europe or comes from whiteness, you tend to gravitate towards that, you know, as the, the, the 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 ambition the aspiration you know ah yeah and, <laughs> and that's pretty much just the mentality of most of African America uh -huh. you know? um, this this aspiration towards what has been presented by Europe as what you should be trying to attain the American dream you know and um, it's sad mm. it's sad because it creates us. We don't know who ourselves. We're still lost. You know, we're still lost. We're still disconnected to our from our true selves. And hopefully at some point we'll find ourselves. I think what's going on now is putting us in the right path. The Black Lives Matters type of movement is putting us in the right path towards where, you know, finding out what our true aspiration ought to be, because it isn't what it is right now. Right now it's 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 kind of warped and mm -hmm. it's kind of difficult to figure out where we need to be going but um i think at some point we're going to figure it out i hope i'm around when it happens <laughs> me too um how interesting that your mum was able to divert you away from that and into you to use your words in towards black self-esteem yeah like when you say she was forward thinking i didn't really know what you meant there but now i'm starting to put it together that she really knew how to divert you towards that by the way, i'm from liverpool by the way so you know this i'm as you're talking i can put together the pieces of the of uh some pieces of of this uh dreadful puzzle actually mm. um so um yes and i can remember being in a in a really awkward situation in japan actually i had a very enthusiastic uh um boss and she asked uh, our uh, African-American uh, colleague and there was a Scottish guy and they have the same surname. And she was like, oh, maybe you're related. And, uh, <laughs> like, and I was like, oh. And he, he just said straight away, yeah. no, that's my slave name. Right. And, you know, uh, which good for him, but also 
why though but uh, you know it's just uh, you and I both know this is just part of so much stuff and and a lot of naivety in Japan which is it's well-intentioned right but at the same time it's it's quite well, it's not just Japan America no no hello yeah it's a global naivete yeah um and it's purposely done you know this was intentionally done it wasn't an oversight you know what I mean say more so, say more yeah say it again say more say more yeah, like that. It's not. Well, I'm saying that, that, that if you look at the reason my mother was also part of this uh, for her her able to her ability to, to foresee things is that, and 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 she didn't really have to use it too much because she had three children who were in the public school system, so she can see exactly what they were learning, and they were not learning this in the school. When they taught about slavery, they taught about it in a way that made it seem like, oh, this was just uh, a bad time for Black people. So um, it was, uh, wait, was I? I'm sorry. Definitely. I'm just giving a shout out to Mrs. Bayer there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, yeah. Easily married, congratulations. Anyway, um, we were talking about, um, yeah, it's quite, it's quite a big question. And it was like it is the, a big question. The deliberate, so, it, no. So it's almost like, if I'm hearing you right, it's almost like it was like, whoops, that happened. But it wasn't whoops that happened. It was like that happened for four hundred years. Tell me where I'm wrong, and and tell me what the deliberate kind of whatever um, happened. Denaming. <laughs> it's kind of like. Uh, um, Okay, I'm not. Well, you say you're from Liverpool, so if 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 you grew up in America, maybe some of this went overseas as well. You look at films about uh, the American expansion from east to west, and you'll see these cowboy movies. Yeah. And cowboys are the heroes, and the Indians are the villains, yep. right? And this is the narrative that was taught in school, not just on TV, in school as well. So. And the narrative in the films that you see about from that period or from um, the, the pre uh, um, the pre proclamation um, emancipation proclamation period, you'll see, you know, happy slaves like going with the wind, you know, Maria. so they look like they're just like, you know, just, you know, part of the family. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't the case. But this was the narrative that was taught. You know that um, this is this was just how it was in that time. This is how people at the time, you know, got around. This is how things went. But it was much deeper than that. You know, you know, it was much it was much deeper than that. And this just wasn't taught. You're not taught that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves and raped his slaves. You're just not taught that. You're not taught that George Washington and these people they're heroes in American history. So if you go to American school, your heroes going to be people who owned your people so and that's just it's just never going to be presented to you in that way but the school i went to you better believe it was so and, and the fact that it was presented to me in that way i had a much clearer understanding of what america really is what it's really about and i had a much better a much healthier self-esteem as a result so this is what i meant by um <laughs> Beautiful. And you've almost answered my next question, which is like, what did you think was the the impact? So you said you've got a much healthier self-esteem, oh, yeah. very strong sense of self. How how else do you think that that 
that like being straight into that kind of environment uh, has and how does it come how does it transfer into your as you know I'm actually answering my own question here because I've often thought <laughs> how how is bias so able to just put himself like you are so so very honest and straightforward about anything that's a hot button issue to do with race in Japan and I I just often wish that I had your same bravery and skill and I'm, I'm starting to put it together a little bit now but I'd like to hear more from you what that kind of that sense of self-esteem and that sense of <sighs> narrative is so important I don't know if you can catch the question from this bay I'm I'm kind of I feel like I'm having a moment so I'm gonna hand it over <laughs> to you <laughs> feel like something's just another piece of the dreadful um, puzzle has just caught, fallen into place, but it's a good piece. <laughs> well, I think that um, it's not necessarily about having the answers, but it's about asking the right kinds of questions. And I think when I came here and I started blogging, I was I wasn't blogging to provide answers, but I was kind of giving people a uh, uh, an idea of what kind of questions they should be asking, you know, and that changed. And in that way, I changed the narrative because now people were, you know, they were questioning things that before they kind of took for granted or they didn't think it was important to question, you know, because they're so accustomed to, I don't know, it, when, when you have a healthy self-esteem and you see everyone as your equal, mm. you know, you approach the world differently. And, and I think that the majority of African-Americans, particularly those who go to public school, they're kind of indoctrinated into a world that tells them that they're less than, you know? And whether they embrace that or not is case by case, but many do. You know, they embrace this, this narrative that they are less than and they have to, um, they're expected to, or it's the natural order that they have to work harder and suffer and you know this type of thing and i don't know I, I never i never embraced that i never of course i was it was presented to me because even though i was going to this school you know i still had to live in the real in this world watching brady bunch and partridge family and all this stuff i still got that you know so i can see what the rest of the world was the narrative that the rest of the world was giving us, as well as the narrative that I was getting from the Pan-African Black Power Movement. And they weren't, I can see the conflict, even from six years old, seven years old, I can see that there was a conflict in the information that I was getting from these various sources. Whereas most people are only getting it from the one source. I, I was getting, you know, yeah. this, this, this narrative that, uh, George Washington is a hero. George Washington is a villain. Thomas Jefferson is a hero. No, 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 no. Thomas Jefferson is a villain. Uh -huh. You know, I was getting both. Yeah. And it kept me balanced. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, it prepared me for the kind of challenges that I'm facing now. You know, this, this ability to, to remain balanced and capable of kind of seeing the world from this perspective and this perspective, you know. Um, 
don't know. Is, is that help? That, that kind of does it really helps it's so interesting to hear this i mean when i mean of course my ears prick up when i hear the word self-esteem and uh, <laughs> from the coaching perspective but it just that that sense of yourself and that's i love what you said here like healthy self-esteem and you feel equal to everybody else you approach yourself and the world differently and I really, I really love that idea. And I think there's something really juicy underneath here for anybody who's listening. I remember my friend's mum, who is Japanese, um, used to say that Japan has this strange self-esteem problem as a country. This is how she described it, right? They used to live in America as well. She, she lived in America for ages and then came back to Japan. Whereas they, they're always pitching themselves as superior or inferior to other people. So you have, and when you're in that kind of balance, you always have to be like measuring where you are above or below people. And that can really um, impact your ability to have integrity or to, to uh, no disrespect to Japan. This is just me kind of working this out as I'm speaking um, uh, or to, to tell the truth or to not hide parts of yourself. And I'm seeing that in you now. It's that sense of like, you don't have to kind of leverage yourself above or below people because you have a healthy self-esteem. You see everybody as equal and you approach the world and yourself differently. Therefore, I can output all this very, very hot button topic stuff. I can call out the blackface on NHK or where I, or whatever it is. Or um, I can go to Nissin, this huge food conglomerate and say, uh-uh, no, you don't get to make that cartoon, you know? And, and, and not be like, filled with concern that you need to kowtow or you know whatever that does right. it make sense i hope no, it makes no, no. The people it listening. yeah absolutely that's exactly right that's yeah. exactly right and um and i think that it began with this school <laughs> and with my mother's insistence that this is how her children should be indoctrinated no. and uh it, it, it's just a brilliant move on her part absolutely, absolutely brilliant genius move on her part and and, and, I, and i'm not even sure if she saw this in the future no you know <laughs> i don't know if she saw you know yeah. the, the 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 future ramifications of what she was doing at that time but maybe she did maybe she did we never really talked about it but uh maybe she did yeah we didn't back then we didn't really talk that much about things. yeah we had to wait for oprah to come along to give us permission to all talk about things openly <laughs> um but um i i i think this is really important for anybody as well is to have that sense of self and that sense of equity and equality from a really and, and recognition and sense of self from an early age that is based in something beyond um and whatever your mum saw there i think and i could be wrong but i think that a lot of us are now seeing now over this last year that kind of peeling back of like Oh shit! It was much, more, much, much worse than we ever imagined, hmm. and has been all along. Yeah, you know. And wow. Okay then. Um, yeah, and I just had a preview of that. <laughs> I think I think my school was like they told me back then. It's much worse than you think. And it has always yeah, been. It it's, inherent. it's inherent yeah. in the country itself. It's inherent in the very first constitution. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, it's interesting you should bring up the Constitution. I was um, talking to somebody else who really loves the Constitution, Terry, Terry McMillan. Ooh, she, I remember, I know Terry. 
Yeah, of course, you're both Brooklyn, <laughs> yeah. Brooklyn guys, aren't you? Both creative. She's one of my favorite humans ever. We used to be in a women's organization together on the board of directors. Wow. Okay. Really good friend. And our conversation was fantastic. I just felt like I'd been to the pub or something <laughs> anyway. And she also <laughs> talked about the constitution and how fascinated she is because she got really, really, really involved in um, the maybe the John Kerry campaign and then the Obama campaign. Um, and she was talking about the constitution, how fascinated she is by it. And yeah, so it just it just really links back to that. And I would encourage the listeners to go back and listen to that interview too, because these guys are from the same place, just I think maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 years apart. Um, so um, let's move on. So I'm interested just to get back into your chronology. Right. Um, so you, you graduated university, you, you wrote a novel before you came to Japan, is that right? I did. Mm -hmm. I did it. It was very um, autobiographical, as usual. The first novel usually is, uh -huh. and um, uh, I was I was working at the time. I was working in corporate America mm -hmm. um, as a as a sales executive at this company in, in, in Midtown Manhattan, and I was doing it was doing very well. But uh, a friend of mine, <laughs> this is funny. A friend of mine recommended a book. He said, "Read this book." So I read it. The name of the book was, you probably read it too, The Fountainhead. No, I haven't. Oh, I recommend. Okay. But anyway, it's a book by Ayn Rand. It's called The Fountainhead. And I read the book. And I don't know, occasionally you read a book and it's kind of a, a, a boat rocker, you know, it's kind of, yeah. yeah. And th that was a boat rocker for me. That's it. That made me question everything I was doing and why. And I've read it several times since then, but the first time it really, if it, it, yeah. The next thing I know, I, I was saving up money to leave that job. I was writing a book because I'm like, I decided I am not a salesperson. I am not a, you know, this is not the, the lifestyle I want. I, I want to be a writer. So I started writing a book. Right after I finished reading that book, I started writing my novel. Mm -hmm. And, um, and saving up money and working towards this great big bonus. And what happened was I finished the book mm -hmm. and a friend of mine, he said, oh, they, they're, they're having a, um, a writer's conference at this uh, university near my home in Brooklyn. We should go. And we went. Uh, this is there's a lot of serendipity here, so bear with me. So we went to this, uh, we went to this, this conference and it was a, a one of the sessions was um, it was it was a black writers conference. So some editors are talking about how complicated it is to get your book published, blah 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 blah. And we listened to this editors roundtable kind of panel thing. And after the panel, you know, we were invited to come up to the stage and give a you know give them our cards and talk about you know your books or whatever. So I did that. And while I was down there, somebody out of the crowd randomly just walks up to me and says, oh, you know Marie Brown is here. I'm like, I didn't know who Marie Brown is. I'm like, you share? But I could tell from the tone of their voice there was somebody I should know. Yeah. So I'm like, really? Yeah, where? He's like, oh, she's, she's up there. I'm like, oh, wow. He's like, you should go tell her about your book. I'm like, really? Okay. So I went up there. There's like a line to talk to her. Like about four or five people were waiting on lines. So I'm like, she must be somebody i still don't know who she is and then i woke up to him like um 
hi, Marie, my name is Bye, and I wrote this novel. She's like, oh, I told a little bit about it. She said, it sounds interesting. She gave me a card. She said, here's my email address. Send me the first three chapters. If I like it, I'll tell you, send me the rest. I said, okay. And then when I went home, this is pre-internet. <laughs> right, there's no real internet at this time, so I can't really, you know, Google her or anything like that. This is the '90s, yeah. so, um, you know, I, I, I did that. I sent through the first three chapters, but later on, I asked people around, you know, friends of mine, do you know Marie Brown? Is like, that's Terry McMillan's agent. I'm like, huh? I what? So anyway, I sent her the first three chapters she sent me another email she said oh this is great send me the rest so I sent her the rest next thing I know I'm under contract with the same agent as Terry McMillan and a few other famous black writers so I was like okay I'm off to the races <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. I'm off to the races and then uh, I quit the job I got the big bonus I'm working from home I'm a full-time writer you couldn't tell me nothing right right and then you know what happens go on Osama bin Laden decides to shoot some airplanes at the Twin Towers, you know. So, yeah, this is right in the middle of this process. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I'm from Brooklyn, so you could, I could see it from my roof. It was really, uh, it, it really shut everything down, as you might imagine. So the, the publishing industry, everything was shut down in New York after 9-11. And... Um, I don't know. I, I it, it kind of changed the whole. My momentum was, <laughs> you know, because I had the big mo until that moment. Until that moment, I mean, at that at that time, after I had quit my job, I was working as a consultant in Bethesda Stuyvesant. I was uh, beautifying Bethesda Stuyvesant, going, and also I was going, giving talks at um, block associations about how people can avoid, because this was gentrification was just kind of hitting Bed-Stuy at that point. Can I, can I ask, what is Bed-Stuy? What's Bedford-Stuy? Bedford-Stuyvesant is a black community, well, formerly, <laughs> black community in in Brooklyn. Okay. Very, it's very, uh, very famous. I've, uh, some some very famous people are from there. Uh, Lena Horn's from there. Um, Bunch, bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Biggie Smalls is from Best Eye. So anyway, um, oh, but okay. it, my husband had never heard of Biggie Smalls, right? Really? Yeah, he's got loads of like CDs and stuff of other artists, but he'd never heard of Biggie Smalls. Yeah. So he watched the documentary uh, about three weeks ago, and he was really, really interested. And the next day, he said to me, "I love that documentary about Biggie Smalley." <laughs> Biggie Smalley. <laughs> oh my god you're so sweet <laughs> and, and I, I was just dumbfounded how could anybody of our generation have not heard of Biggie Smalls but anyway there you go <laughs> uh, yeah it was um so best I bet so I, I grew up in you know they, with gerrymandering there was a lot of uh mm -hmm. shifting of what what neighborhood you in? So originally, when I first moved to the neighborhood, it was Bedford Opposite. Then it became Crown Heights. Then it became so I, I kind of grew up in Bedford Crown Heights area, kind of on the border of these two communities. And um, so anyway, I, I was uh, at that time I was living in 
in uh, Bethesda Stuyvesant proper, and I was going door to door, kind of, because there's a lot of elderly people owning these homes in Bethesda Stuyvesant, and they were being targeted by these predatory lenders and other kind of um, groups trying to, you know, separate them from their property or kind of getting them to sell the property for cash at a cheap price and, you know, below value for cash and stuff like that. And a lot of them were victimized in that at that time. And now these homes, I mean, you know, some of these homes are worth millions of dollars right now. Yeah, of course. These brownstone homes. So it got super gentrified. So, yeah. So they, you know, at that time, I was trying to help them, you know, to avoid getting cheated out of their homes. And um, so I was, I was really, I had the big mo. I was, I was going to go into politics. I was just feeling all kinds of great. And um, then 9-11 occurred and kind of put everything on hold. And um, I think it was during that time, and I had just I just wrote about this just now, matter of fact. But um, I remember I, I, you know, in my community, there's, you know, here in Japan we have the convenience, but in America, in 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 New York, primarily, they have these corner stores. We call them bodegas. Yeah. So the bodega, most of the bodegas were either owned by Dominicans mm -hmm. or um, Middle Eastern people, mostly like Yemen, Yemen Yemeni. Yemenis and um, my corner's bodega was owned by some a gentleman from Yemen. He'd been there for 20, 30 years. And um, you know, he's like, you know, just part of the community forever, you know. And I, I remember after 9-11, I walked into his store and I could see something was wrong. He had a he had a you know look in his face. And I looked down at the counter, and I could see his gun was there and open. I'm like, Muhammad, what's wrong? And he's like, you know, some asshole came in here and called me a terrorist. Oh, and he said the people around here are starting to give him a look like he's, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden's best buddy and stuff. And I'm like, I was shocked because it's a black community. And I never, you know, if, if, if honestly, I thought white people, I could see white people doing that, but I could not see black people doing that. And it, it shocked the hell out of me. It really did. And um, I felt sad. I felt angry. Cause he's been making my sandwiches for me since I was a kid. You know, it's be a terrorist and we'd be dead. He could have poisoned all of us forever. You know what I'm saying? What kind of, what kind of terrorist is, is, is cooking for us? He's making ham sandwiches for us. He's Muslim. You know, <laughs> is that a terrorist? <laughs> so anyway, um, it was a, uh, it was a shock. That was a shock to my system. And in Bethesda, Iverson, after 9-11, you could see suddenly, and I, and I had never seen this in my entire life, red, white, and blue flags coming, protruding from people's homes. I mean, this patriotism I had never, ever seen from a black community before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know, it, it was disturbing. It was disturbing. So a friend of mine invited me to come hang out with him in Japan for a couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, this is a, this would be a great escape for a year or two. Let Bush get out of office maybe, you know, stay over here for a while. And that's what I did. That's how I first came to Japan. Just in 2001? 2004. Oh, 2004. So you 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 spent a few years after that. That must have been really. That, that sounds really awful. I'm really sorry you had to go through that. Like not only seeing New York under like coming down, but also seeing that that shift in your community as well. Mm. It's um. Yeah, it's a weird one, isn't it? It was. It was. It's a trick. 
Yeah. I mean, it was two years, you know, the, the, everybody was in trauma. I mean, I understand. It was very traumatic. You know, everybody was really freaked out. I mean, it, yeah. it was like a Godzilla movie. I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if you, I was in New York. This is ground zero. I rode my bicycle to Manhattan two days after the fact. There's still debris falling from the sky. I mean, it was really like, you know, like the, the set from some, you know, Die Hard Five. You know, it was really, you, you just, it, it, you just don't recover from that. The the debris was six stories high. You know what I mean? It's like that, it, it, and it, and it, you just can't believe your eyes. No. So yeah, I, I still got those images in my head. That that type of thing. I mean, I I, I kind of crept into Manhattan because Manhattan was kind of closed. But we found a way to get in there. I got there on my bike because I wanted to see this. I'm like, yeah, up close. And it's uh, anyway, um, yeah. So that was two years of that before my friend said, "Come over here, hang out with me for a while." You sound like you need a break. Yeah. And I went over there, and uh, I came back to New York. And the company that hires people to work in Japan, and they have an office in New York, so I went there and. Wound up back in Japan, and I've been here ever since. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I actually came here in two thousand and one and watched that from my TV in Atsugi yeah. when I lived up wow. there. Yeah, just before my thirtieth birthday, and yeah, it wasn't the best celebration. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Um. Still, so two thousand four, you come to Japan, and. And what happens next then, Bay? What Baye? Sorry, I keep saying your name wrong. Baye, Yahweh, Baye, Yahweh. I must implant that into my head. Um, Baye. Um, what happens next? You come over in 2004, like most of us, for a short stay, probably. <laughs> yeah, I came for a short stay, but um, I know during that first year I met someone. And uh yeah, she was really, really great. And we had a really, you know, tumultuous relationship, but at the same time, it was really beautiful. And um, yeah, I fell in love. But then, uh, you know, she got sick and uh, with cancer, she passed away. But um, yeah, yeah, it was pretty horrible. But um, before she passed away, she knew, I, you know, she knew I was a writer at heart, but I wasn't really writing because I was you know, over here in Japan, kind of <laughs> really, really nearly all over the place. But um, she was like, you're a writer, right. You know, stop, stop, stop acting around, right. You know, so in dedication to her, I wrote. And that's when I started to blog uh, back in 2008, local Yokohama, and I just kind of started writing every day. And um, that led to the first book, which I dedicated to her. Mm -hmm. And eventually I wrote the second book and got the column with Japan Times and momentum, momentum. The big mo. <laughs> the mo, the mo, okay. The, mo. the momentum. So that's super, super important always. Um so then. So you're in Yokohama, you've written this book, and so you got your column in the Japan Times, which is called Black Eye, is that right? Correct. How long has that been going for now? I started the column in, I want to say 20, 
2014, 2015? 2014 or 2015. Okay, so 10 years into being here. Yeah, it's been a minute. Seven years now. And that's still in play, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still in play. I've been, I've been avoiding the news, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. But, I, get, um, I get the highlights on my phone and then I'm done. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just like it's just like being punched in the face nonstop. Uh, yeah. But, uh, it, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I, when I was uh, when I was approached by the uh, Japan Times editors, it, you know they wanted to uh, they wanted to get me to to do a column, and I was interested in it, of course. But at the same time, you know, I felt like I wanted to make a difference here in Japan, but it's kind of difficult to make a difference when you're writing in English for an English language paper. You're not really reaching the people who need to be reached for the most part, but um, they informed me that, you know, that Japan Times readership about 25% Japanese. I was like, really? You know, that, that, that really surprised me. So I changed my mind and said, okay. And I'm so glad I did because it gave it gave me a platform, a real like legitimate platform, to 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 address a lot of the issues here. And and the other thing was I wanted to. I feel like the unlike America, where I think the the biggest problem with race is fear, exact no hate exacerbated by fear. I think in in Japan, it's not hate but it's just fear and ignorance mostly and by addressing the ignorance you can reduce the fear it's my theory so i feel like my column by focusing on the things about people of african descent that are not common knowledge here in japan unfortunately because their media is very uh i don't know white like, foreigner oriented <laughs> you're right so i i I, I want to let them know about some of the things. I think they have a lot of questions. What are what are black people doing here? You know, because they see the story about you know some some guys raped some Japanese girl in Okinawa or so some African guy killed the Japanese taxi driver. These types of stories are you know bam bam, but the positive stories are not. Yeah, you know, hitting them upside the head. So I said, I want to hit them upside the head with some positive stories. And um, so I focus on, for example, like a university professor from from Mali, or um, you know, a lawyer from Jamaica, or you know, these types of people who are here and doing you know incredible things, and um, that they just they just aren't talked about enough, you know. So I try to put their names and put their images and put their 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 um, accomplishments on on uh on blast and it, it was successful you know it was successful you know nobody was really doing anything like that no. you know, now there's a lot of people doing it and i feel so great that i don't have to i don't feel like it's only me now they got like these youtube channels that focus on the, the black experience in japan and they got all this stuff so there's a lot of people doing it now so i feel like okay i can step back and, and focus on other things you know, I finally, you know, encouraged or inspired enough people to do the same thing. Because back when I started it, everybody was feeling like they were taking it for granted that, oh, well, 
You know, I'm like, no, somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to shove blackness in their face. And, those, and I think most people feel uncomfortable doing that. They feel like, um, I don't know. I don't know. I feel people feel, huh? Hedging, like hedging a little bit or no? Because I don't think, I think that, for example, most like white people don't have to do that. They don't have to shove whiteness because it's just like a status quo. Uh -huh. But we have to do extra. We have to be extra and people don't want to be extra. They want to just go, let's let things happen organically, naturally. No, you can't because organically, naturally, it won't happen. They're going to default to somebody else, some yep. other group, some other voices. They're going to be the default. You are never going to be the default. You have to kicking the door, like Biggie Small says, kicking the door, waving the 4-4. That's what he meant. It wasn't just about violence. It was about, this is how you, this is how you make things happen. You kind of kicking the door, waving the 4-4. And basically that's how I built a career <laughs> in Japan. Kicking in the door, waving the 4-4, best time. Spread love is the Brooklyn way. That's oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and um, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I had people like uh, my mother and Biggie Smalls as uh, <laughs> inspirations 100%. for the things I want to accomplish here. Love that, and, and it, it all to, to me by it, it all comes back to that school and your mum's insight and just that kind of the way that you can have this presence. And now you are the daddy of the, <laughs> <laughs> the black experience in Japan, and so 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 well. I don't know how to describe it, but I, I just like reading what you have to read anyway. Like I enjoy, I mean, you're a writer, but I like, you know, you can pick and choose, but I enjoy reading what you write anyway. Well, so you. bravo. And also we other, like we white people, we need to, we need to read it too. <laughs> Anybody who's reading the Jap Japan Times need to read it too. Thank, you know, it's great that you're reaching Japanese people too, but all the people who read the Japan Times need to see that, frankly. I don't yeah, need to I that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, def, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean. <laughs> oh, I do. I make myself laugh. I'm like, why am I preaching this to the choir? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a choir here. Yeah, I, I agree. You're, totally. the choir, you're the choir, the pastor and the bloody pope. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyway, so let's bring us up to speed now. So when you were talking there about like really highlighting black experience in Japan and so on, that there's two people who spring to mind here and I'm so glad that they're women as well, is the woman who was, um, is it Miss Universe or Miss Japan? Well, it, it depends which one you're talking about. Because <laughs> they're, they're both were black at one the point. First, the first one. That was Miss Universe Japan, Ariana Miyamoto. Yes. Her and then and also the one the 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 woman now. She's also Miss Universe Japan. Oh, amazing! Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you've been so you've been kind of interviewing them and promoting them and and something. Can you tell us a bit more about that? And then we'll come on to the Naomi Osaka um, conversation. She's um, amazing, but still, she is amazing. She's um, Ariana. Ariana Miyamoto. I met her a few times. Um, she's great. She's mm -hmm. great. And I, when she won the Miss Universe Japan contest, beauty contest, um, it was unprecedented, obviously. And she was, there was a lot of criticism about her being not Japanese enough and, 
you know, how can a black woman be represent Japan? This kind of thing. Where was this coming from, Bay? Bay. <laughs> oh shit, the bad. I'm gonna say Bay. <laughs> oh god, oh. I'm so ashamed. I'm so sorry. Please, it happens, it happens. honestly, uh, Bay. What was the question? I've got, it, I've got it written here on a piece of paper. <laughs> Bay, Yahweh. I'm gonna stick a post-it note on the screen now. Um, um, where was that coming from? That criticism. Not that it makes um, any difference. I it was on social, you know, social, oh, yeah. um, social media, uh, Twitter, and Nichan, you know, the usual suspects. So, um, but she rolled with it. She was great. I mean, and when I first interviewed her, um, the first time I interviewed her, she, she was telling me about how it was growing up because she grew up in. Uh, Nagasaki area over there. And, um, you know, there's a lot of bullying she had to deal with growing up. And she she mentioned, she said, she told me that there was a, a friend of hers, uh, another um, biracial youth. He was uh, half white. Mm -hmm. And uh, he couldn't handle a lot of the, the bullying. And, um, the treatment that they were getting and he committed suicide. So that that was her impetus for for trying to get a get a find a platform to talk about these things and to make sure that you know this type of thing doesn't continue to happen to untraditional Japanese people, you know, like herself and uh and when the opportunity came to to be part of the, the Miss Universe Japan thing, that she she you know she decided that would be her platform because she had the look, she had the talent, she had the you know whatever you the equipment <laughs> to, uh, to, to 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 be competitive in that arena, and and clearly she was because she won. Yeah. So yeah, when she told me that, I was like, wow. And, and, and initially that's what she was doing, but um, there was a backlash, you know, because, um, and I realized that was the case before it got ugly, but I said, she, she's, she's, if she doesn't win the global contest, because she won the, the Japan, the national contest, but now she has to go up against Miss Universes from all over the world, right? And if she doesn't win that, then she has to come back here. Now, if she comes back here after all the things she's been saying, politicizing this whole, her win as much as she has, how is Japan gonna receive her? And uh, it hasn't been good, mm. you know? And um, that, that's, that's unfortunate. Mm. That's unfortunate because it's going to, I, I felt like it was going to have an impact on the next, on future winners. They're going to be more reserved, like, oh, I'm going to be careful what I say about Japan because, you know, when I, if I don't win the, 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 the main contest and have a chance to go all over the world and be the face of Miss Universe, if I don't have that opportunity, I'm going to have to come back here and be a talent or work in a fashion magazine, stuff like that. And if they don't open those doors for me because they're afraid I might be too political or whatever, you know, so they kind of terrorize people who, who gain a platform here so that they don't speak up. And that's, you know, so 
and here I am trying to encourage them to speak up, but then I feel kind of torn because I don't want them, I don't want to put them in a position where they can't have a good life here in Japan because they are too outspoken. I can do that because I'm a guard, gaijin, whatever, but they are Japanese. They have to live here fully immersed in the, the in, in, in Japanese-ness and they can't if, you know, yeah, I, I hear you, Bay. I I often have this quandary myself because I'm always, you know, encouraging people to take bold moves and do this and do that. But there's always some collateral to that, and I think, yeah, for people like you and I who maybe are in positions of um, leadership, I'm going to say that that we have to be very, very mindful of the collateral that might come with that. Um, I just want to also for people who are listening outside Japan to let them know that gaijin means foreigner here, but it's a kind of it's a slight. It's it's like saying Johnny Foreigner or something, right. kind of, but shorter. Um, but Bay and I, I think <laughs> right. fair enough to say. I think it would be fair enough to say that Bay and I both have a lot of respect and love for Japan. Am I wrong? Do you have a lot of yeah, respect for Jan? Yeah, but we also understand what it is. So we're having quite a high context conversation here. So I just need us to kind of get on the same page for people who may not have the same context. So when when uh, Baye is saying um, when Baye is saying um, um, that they those people have to come back and get into the Japanese-ness, I know exactly what he means. But it's very very everything is very very interwoven and every little action has a consequence or has collateral um and and it's a beautiful thing in one respect because it means that my shinkansen is never late that's what i always kind of remind myself it also means that he and i get to play outside the field and if we're very clever we can play we know exactly how to play inside the rules too um, um but it, it we have to be extremely mindful of the impact that our calls to action might have on uh, people who are inside the, in the uchi, uh, inside the Japanese society. Um, something like that, Bay. would that be a fair? That was extremely fair and well said. Thank you. Except um, in my mind, and, and when I first met her, I kind of felt like because she is biracial, she's not really inside, you know what I mean? Okay. She's always, the, the reason she was subject to the bullying, the Ijime that she had to deal with her entire youth is because she's not inside. But at the same time, she, <laughs> I don't know. I, they're the consummate inside out, in, in <laughs> inside outsider, you know, because they are fully fluent in the language. They are fully fluent in the culture. They know everything that's going on around them. But, you know, at the same time, they're able to, uh, it, the, if, if you're clever, you, you can navigate around and, and work and, and, and work out and work things in a way that that are uh, that that will benefit you. And, and I don't know, it's difficult to explain, but yes. It's maybe not our explanation to make in that way. I think we, we've maybe done as far as we can go on that yeah. one. My gorgeous um, friend and collaborator, Nina Cataldo. Ooh, she, she's nice too. I like Nina. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's absolutely brilliant. So I've interviewed her twice and um, she has a group called Hafu Ladies because people, and Hafu, by the way, is not a slight word in, in, in uh, it means um, that you are half Japanese and half something else. And she chooses that word. She also is that has that background and she has a whole um 
uh, organization that she's uh, organized herself for uh, Hafu ladies because the experience is so very unique and each each unique experience is unique as well but that's a different experience to either mine or Baez or anybody else or somebody right. who's Japanese uh, both parents are Japanese so it's just a, a it, there's so many layers to this stuff isn't there Baez? it is layered. So many extremely layered layers. Um, and it's fascinating. So let's move on. I, I think we should start to land this this conversation now. We're almost up to speed. And uh, I mean, I could go all night, but I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. um, is um, talking to people who are politically active. Um, I would love to just talk about your work around Naomi Osaka. She is like she is somebody who I consider a mentor now because her she's got a similar kind of atmosphere to you in her kind of just brash not brash how can i say her her straightforwardness in what she's doing and thinking and feeling i love her i it's a masterclass in authenticity as far as i'm concerned oh and ps and skill because to be an elite athlete at that level is another level of commitment so um but she was misrepresented in japan in a way that is quite mind-boggling when you look on bay's uh website at the at that part of his his um his work and activism do you just want to speak to that a little bit before we start to land bay um look look it's on the screen <laughs> oh my god and that's for my listeners as well i am like <laughs> you get a blind spot no, no, mate, just, I, I don't know whether I should even make this joke, but just call me Karen. <laughs> so, okay. um, Naomi Osaka, let me see. Um, I don't know, I mean, I guess the first time I came into to, to interacting with her, or with her, I don't know. No, it was with Nishin. So Nishin decided to, to, to do an advertisement featuring her, but in the advertisement, they made her skin several several shades lighter. They changed her hair to some kind of stringy brunette looking thing. And um, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was not a good look. It was not a good look for Nishin. It was not a good look for Naomi. It was not a good look for, for Japan. And, um, you know, I, I wrote a column about it. I did some tweets and, and you know, I, I kind of pushed back against it and um, they apologized, Nishin apologized for the, the issue. They kind of blamed it. They kind of made it into a, a communication issue between the Japanese um, wing of this, the advertiser and the American wing of the advertiser weren't, communicating correctly so because Naomi said she didn't know until it was out mm -hmm. you know that, that they were going to do it. so she never approved this particular uh artwork but anyway um yeah I, I think what was most damaging about that is that there are like we discussed earlier there's many um, biracial children here who look up to Naomi you know and they they've they finally have a hero you know, and then they see their hero portrayed in, in anime as this, uh, you know, this little white girl. And um, it kind of sends the message that they're not good enough. 
It's kind of like what I was saying about my youth in America. The entire public school system sends a message to, to kids of African descent that you're not good enough. You're not good enough to be a historical figure. You're not good enough to be in league with the greats of history. You know, your people are a side note of freaking, you know, and that's pretty much the message that this kind of anime says to these children who were looking for this, you know, for someone who, you know, who's a brown skin hero, mm. you know, they turned her into a, a brunette, you know, and it, it was just disheartening for many of these people. I spoke with a lot of the parents who were, you know, they, you know, they were disgusted by what Nishin did. So anyway, I'm, and, and Naomi, at that time, she was not politicized yet. She was kind of, oh, I'm here to play tennis. I don't know what y'all talking about. I, I am in Australia to play tennis, to win the Open. So, and I really appreciate that because I didn't want to distract her with this thing. But at the same time, this was going on. This is a real thing and it couldn't be ignored because, you know, and a lot of people was like, oh, why are you worried about that? Just you know, focus on the tennis. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is real. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this this is having an impact on people. So it needs to be discussed. And the great thing, the great thing about how it was received, this particular um, um, this particular complaint was a lot of Japanese people recognized it was problematic as well. Because I did a story for uh, Toyo Keizai about this, the Japanese publication. And I was looking at some of the responses on Yahoo Japan and on Toyo Keiza, and even Japanese people were like, why did Nishin do this? Why did they make her lighter? I don't understand. Is it, is it difficult to write, to draw black skin? You know, <laughs> what is the problem with that? So it wasn't just foreigners complaining. So Nishin quite realized that they made a big problem because maybe they were thinking, and this is also part of the problem, something that I talk about quite often when I meet with these companies, is that you have to realize that all of your your products, all your advertising, all of your uh, all your um, efforts are going to be viewed globally by a global audience. So uh, there's no longer, even if you made this commercial, especially for the Japanese market. That doesn't mean only the Japanese market is gonna be watching this commercial. You know, cause that definitely this ad was made for Japanese consumers. It was not made for Western consumers. You would not see this commercial in America, but it's on the internet, it's on YouTube. So it's global and everybody's gonna be taking a look at it. So I think they realize that now. And now that they real, now that they see that that's the, the, the um, that that's the situation and now they're going to be they start to 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 um, proceed accordingly and start to start to take into consideration that everybody's going to be viewing their um, their products and their um, yeah their commercials so anyway that was the key thing that came out of this I think and not just for Nishin but other companies saw this and they adjusted yeah. accordingly as well yeah. Same thing happened with the media, you know, when um, with blackface thing. When they saw what happened, the response to Hamada-san wearing blackface for that, you know, his uh, Mona Mane of Eddie Murphy. When they saw the response to that, there has not been another instance of blackface in Japanese media since then. So blackface is essentially ceased in Japan because of that response to that particular. Um, instance of blackface. So that's great that people are, of course, this, 
as I said at that time, and I, blackface is not the problem. Mm-hmm. Blackface is not necessarily racist. Mm-hmm. Blackface is a symptom of the problem, you know, the, the real problem, you know, with Japanese media. So just because you eliminate blackface doesn't mean that the problem is resolved. But I think they're, they're proceeding in that manner, like, okay, we, we've, 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 we've gotten rid of blackface, now these people can shut up. No, 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 no. <laughs> We're not done because after blackface came whitewashing. You know, the next thing they did was Naomi Osaka. That was after the blackface. So that's another symptom of the problem. So the problem is still there and it results, this problem, this disease, you know, manifests itself in blackface, in whitewashing, in um, that ridiculous NHK freaking anime with to explain um, Black Lives Matters with the, yeah, that really, you remember that really racist animated? So it's it's going to have these types of results, this, this disease that's still alive and kicking in Japanese media. And it's what I've made my objective to try to rectify. So I'm not sure what to call it. I don't like to call it the racism because it's not simply racism. It's not simply ignorance. It's not that, it's not so easy to peg what the issue is, but... um... Well, there's a couple of things in here that I just, the, the from a systems coaching perspective, whenever you remove one thing from a system, something else surfaces. So it's constantly <laughs> right. kind of revealing itself. We say the system will reveal itself. And what you were saying about like removing uh, blackface and, and your part in that, as a coach, we always start with behavior because behavior is really easy to kind of modify. And then we go down into the the, the values and belief systems. Right. What, what came up for me here, Bay, is with the whitewashing of Naomi Osaka is that there's something especially sinister to me about making a dark-skinned woman light-skinned to be more palatable to Japan, especially sinister. That's what came up for me. Um, sinister is that the right word? But um, word I mean, I I think that lighter is more marketable here. Yeah, is that sinister? I'd say so. Okay, but that's, sinister. That's, <laughs> but I'm a drama queen, and I but I'll I'll take that. That's what came that that's what surfaced for me as we were talking, okay. as you were just talking to me. Then I've not put that word on it before, but as you were saying it, it's like that's. Yeah, to make it more palatable or to make it more marketable, that you actually make this woman not her anymore, is there's something sinister about that to me anyway. Um, mm, please, please tell me where I'm wrong. I didn't say you were wrong. And I don't. I'm, 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 I'm just trying to. F- it's you know my favorite word is problematic. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> that's my word hashtag <laughs> <laughs> so sinister no, is a little darker is a lot darker than problematic i like to use problematic because it's kind of a flat word it's like yeah there's a problem there and we're going to address it as opposed to that's racist you know well, <laughs> so sinister is closer to racist than problematic is <laughs> well i'll take you problematic and i'll raise you sinister i'm not i'm not <laughs> You know, and it's kind of like what I was telling you earlier about the balance. So I'm able to keep my balance if I avoid labeling things racism easily. Because 
I, I try to use that word sparingly. Yeah. You know, it's particularly here in Japan because it's not received well. No. It's, they don't have a they don't have a good relationship with this word. You know, the sabetsu is it kind of it covers too much of discrimination, racism, prejudice, bigotry, but it covers too much. So I try to avoid these types of words because they're too strong and people can't digest it properly, you know. So problematic works <laughs> for me. Sinister is even a little too strong, I think. I'll hold sinister. <laughs> and we'll go wild with the hashtag. You're gonna stick to sinister? Um uh, no, because, I, because sinister. I am because there's something really that 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 says Here's why it's sinister, because it signals to me that I have more value than Naomi Osaka. No. I, <laughs> yes, that is the, 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 the underlining message. But I'm, I'm capable of spinning. Not oh, spinning is the wrong word. So, for example, um, this was my take. I'm going to tell you exactly how I read that. I read that as Japanese consumers are, are custom to a certain type of advertising. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't include black people, <laughs> of course. So how do we use Naomi Osaka in our advertising if her blackness is going to make our consumer base uncomfortable? We make her lighter. That's how I read it. We make her lighter and whiter because that's more palatable, that's more acceptable to our customer base. Is that sinister? If you read it that way. I'm deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uncomfortable is good. Uncomfortable is good. I can work with uncomfortable. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll land it here. This is how I feel about it. Chotto. It's just, yeah. Chotto. Doesn't problematic capture that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. I. I <laughs> sinister is not chopto. I. Okay. No. I, I, Zerui. Zerui is kind of sinister, kind of sneaky, yeah. kind of underhanded, kind of. No, I don't think <laughs> the intentions there, but I think the impact has a has an edge. The impact is sinister. Yes. Okay. And, and and the reason I came at them so strongly is because of the impact. But not necessarily because I thought they they had they were on some. No, no, no. I don't think so. I right. don't think the intention was not sinister. The result. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, got it. <laughs> uh, oh, um, unless unless it was. <laughs> unless it was right. That's another. That's another. Well, you know what? Friends of mine have come to me about the advertiser. We're not going to say their name, but it's a big one. That these are some super racist. A friend of mine told me that they are extremely racist people. So, but I don't know that for a fact. No. He he's a person who who works for them directly. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah. but I don't know that for a fact. So it, yeah, it remains alleged. And until I see, you know, myself personally see evidence of that, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it with a grain of salt. But anyway, good job on your part. Um you. in um in in doing that. And again, now I get it, like, because I was like whoa, he took on that. Now I understand where that comes from. It's from the self-esteem. <laughs> that's, that's my, so I'm going to be get, calling my therapist quite soon after this so I can boost mine. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and do better work in the world. So um, this kind of brings us up to speed. So um, I don't want to take too much of your time up here, but I just want to 
Mark, the shit show that was the last year mm. and the four years prior to that. Now we've already covered that there were 400 prior years to that as well, which were also a shit show. But yeah. I'm just interested <laughs> to, to know. Um, I mean, I, I'm saying that in a comedy way, but you know, um, so, but like, yeah, so there was the four years of that, that presidency, which was really intense. And um, like, I didn't even realize until like, I was like, why do I feel more relaxed this week? You know, it doesn't have that much impact on me. Well, it does, but anyway, but um, yeah, this last year, in a nutshell, because I do want to let you go and have your dinner. What's the question? How's this last year been for you? I mean, you really did take on the mantle of the kind of the, the spokesperson for Black Lives Matter over here in Japan. So I just wondered how this last year has been for you, Baye, because I know it's been a really intense year for you. Um, it has ups and downs, but it, it ultimately was fabulous. I feel like we made significant strides. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's a lot of organizations now in Japan where there weren't before. There's a Black Lives Matter Tokyo, Black Lives Matter Osaka, Kyoto, Hiroshima. There's, they're, you know, they're, they're based around Japan, you know, and they're active. You know, they're still doing things to this day, you know, having various events. There's other, other organizations that are being more progressive, more um, um proactive about addressing different issues here. I just, I used to really feel fairly alone out there. Mm -hmm. Now I don't, I feel like there's a, there's an army, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's an army of people out there who, who, who we're not, we're not all exactly on the same page, but we all kind of headed in a similar direction or in the same direction. And that's enough. You know, I feel like some people are kind of mercenaries, you know, it just kind of, not mercenaries, but, uh, what we call them culture vultures. You know, they're just trying to get paid off the thing. But, um, you know, um, unintentionally, they're doing some goodness too. They're doing some good too. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot of lot of energy out there that's going in the right direction. I'm very happy about that. Um, last year, and not, and not just, and, and uh, besides the, the, the energy I'm getting from the people, which has been the most, uh, um, that has filled me with the most promise and the hope for the future, but also the media here. I, I want to talk about briefly about NHK because you know I talked about that that really racist segment um, program they did last year. But um, after I after I went there and did a presentation and told them how they could do things better, the type of things they need to 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 change in order to to. To, to rectify the damage they've done and to prevent further damage and to, to, to improve things moving forward, how they can diversify and you know, increase representation and talk about things that they just haven't been talking about here before. They've been doing it. They've been following my recommendations, creating new program that you know, that's more diverse and more representative of, you know, biracial Japanese people and people of African descent and people of Indian descent and, you know, that are here, that are living here and being productive, they're doing more, you know, and not just on NHK world, but, you know, on the Japanese program, you know, which is the most <laughs> important one, you know, the main program, the main station, they did a special on, on the, 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 the EG made that, that, um, 
that biracial people experience here. I was shocked. I almost shocked to tears. I was like, I couldn't believe this, this is just unprecedented stuff. You know, so I'm going to be watching because I'm kind of a media watchdog and make sure they continue to do these types of things. And when I feel them slipping, I'm going to, you know, give them a little shove. But uh, so far, so good. I mean, I really think they need to hire more people, have some biracial people or even non-Japanese, non-traditional Japanese people on staff, you know, and get some consultants to kind of police some of the programming that, that they have questions about, you know, because they're still putting out some, some questionable messages. I'm watching a, a program, they did a segment on a Jaspera, Jaspera, I forgot the name of the <laughs> they're gonna be mad, I'm so sorry. But name of the organization, it's, it's about, um, it's a, uniting uh, Africans and, and Japanese. And um, they did a special on that. And the first thing the reporter says, this is on NHK, the first thing the reporter says is, uh, we talk about how homogenous Jap Japan is. I just hate when they begin any new segment with, it's like, you know, whatever happens after this, just remember that Japan is 99.9% .9 Japanese. I'm like, this is not accurate stuff. And they keep reinforcing this, this fallacy and it's it's problem problematic it's problematic sinister god damn it it's, it's, it's problematic and they need to they need to stop doing that but um anyway little by little I mean, you know squishy sits in there we're gonna we'll get there we'll get there and with you at the helm i'm sure that it's just gonna happen. now i know you're really into the big boys really that's your area of um of focus, but for us smaller people, how can we not be mercenaries and culture vultures? <laughs> follow your heart. I don't know. I can't. I can't. You know. Good. All right. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. You know, if you if you if you find yourself following your pocket, you're probably a culture vulture. Follow <laughs> your heart. <laughs> do do the right thing, like Spike Lee says. Do the right thing. <laughs> if the right thing just happens to put money in your pocket, okay. But uh, if, if you <laughs> really, I'm serious. It's, 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 I love it. I don't, don't want to oversimplify it, but no. But that's really, that's really beautiful. And you know, and again, there can be collateral from that as well because. <laughs> Whenever we're out in the world, like you and I are doing things, there's always going to be somebody pointing the finger and telling us we're doing something problematic or yeah. you know, mercenary or sinister. <laughs> but, you know, that, so, and that's just one of the things I think that comes from following our hearts. And I'm yeah. really glad that I've followed my heart to you today, um, Baye. Um, my assistant and I have been talking about getting you onto my podcast for well over a year now. Wow. And um, I kept putting it off. Of course, we wanted you in May because it arrived <laughs> by it in May. <laughs> and, um, and also I used to video them, but of course with COVID having come along. Um, so the first, the first um, interviews that I did were all videoed. And then when COVID came along, we stopped videoing and I kept putting, I had this list of people that I wanted to save for video and you were one of them. But now I've decided I don't want to do the videoing anymore because this is more fun and easier for everybody. So um, I'm just so thrilled that you, you decided to come on. You really truly are a hero of mine. I'm not just saying that to blow smoke up your ass. I don't even know what that means. Who's ever blown smoke up anybody's ass? I did see a film once, but, and um, so I don't, you know, I just, I really appreciate the work that you do here. And 
Um, I really appreciate the education that you do and and everything that you bring to the fore. And today I get to kind of understand a lot of those kind of like, wow, he's so brave moments. It's like, oh, you've just got self-esteem. <laughs> Being surrounded by people who tell you the truth and give yeah. you a, a history that belongs to you. So um, I'm really, really delighted to have had you here, Bay. So um, do you have any wise words to depart with besides follow your heart? Um. Well, I'm gonna uh, <laughs> um, get me a tattoo that says "Bye, yeah." <laughs> I'll end this with some wise words from a gentleman from Liverpool. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Go on. He has so many. God, I'm talking about Lennon, of course. Oh, is it? And I am the walrus. <laughs> <laughs> he has so many wise words. I mean, I don't even know where to start. Uh, um, but he belongs to New York, really, actually. Yeah, yeah, he kind of... And he used to say that New York reminded him of Liverpool. I've got a brilliant photograph of me and my husband dressed up as John and Yoko. I'm John and... Yeah. Oh, <laughs> anyway. I, I would love to see that. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you, maybe. No, actually, I, um, I just think that, as the people always ask me, they say, they ask me questions like, um, you know, how, how do you stay, how do you keep from, from getting... Um, depressed, yeah. you know, about the, the state of affairs of things and, you know, how do you remain hopeful for the future? And, you know, I, and my answer to that question kind of varies, <laughs> depends on, you know, what kind of, what, what period, what point in my life that you caught me. And right now, I, I would answer that question by saying, um, make sure that you 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 fill the remainder of your life with things that make you happy, you know, because life is going to continue to give you challenges that are going to, um, you know, <laughs> tamper with your happiness, tamper with your joy. But I got this new house, and it brings me so much joy. You know, um, I got a new wife, and she brings me so much joy, and it keeps me balanced. Balance is the key. You know, so when I go out there and, and, and I'm running into all this ugliness, I got all this beauty that I come home to that just kind of brings me back to, to uh, zero, <laughs> you know? And um, that's how I do it. It's, it's, not, it's not even a mystery. It's not even a trick. It's just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I try to make it, I try to keep as, 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 as many positive things in my life as the negative stuff I'm going to run into inevitably. Yeah. Because that's, you know, and everybody's running into it inevitably. So just make sure you, you got enough positive out there to, to keep it balanced. Thank you, Baye. That was just brilliant. Uh, shout out to Mama. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Love you. I'll send a Thank you for letting us in on 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 this little snapshot. So, you know, there are many, many ways to lead a life and this is one of them. And everybody has stories and it's my great, great pleasure to tell them. Thank you for listening today. Baye, where can people find you? Um, yeah, you can go to uh, Baye McNeil on Twitter or BayeMcNeil.com is my website. Um, <laughs> Baye McNeil on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm Bayer McNeil pretty much everywhere. If you put Bayer McNeil on Google, Google, you're going to come up with everything. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to get it. I'm, all, I'm out there. I'm, 
I mm. bear my soul. Yeah. So. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not. But these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Faruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Faruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.